Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, my name is Troy Lather, and I am uh, Ryan's counterpart up in West Bend, and it's, it's great to be here in Jackson with you this morning. We are kind of in week two of a series, a short series we're doing on family called This Is Us. And uh, Mike opened the series up last week talking about kind of where we've seen the family going. Uh, did Mike do that here, Ryan, last week? He was here, right? Okay. And then uh, <clears throat> kind of where we know that God is calling the family to go because this is family is core to our culture in the world and it has been for as long as family has been around. Now, this week, in week two, what we're going to do is we're going to focus in and I'm going to primarily speak to uh, the men in the room this morning, all right, which there are a fair amount of you and I'm, I'm excited about that. Now, here's the deal. Gals, if you're in the room... And uh, you're like, okay, well, if he's going to be talking to the guys, like, do I need to check out? Can I just check out then? And I would ask that you would not check out because uh, you're going you're gonna to probably find the things that I say to be also helpful and relevant. And they may be coming down the pipe for you, some of the things hopefully the guys might take away. And so I want you to be aware of that. Um, but now having said that, I do have a few rules for you this morning. Ladies, the first one is this, um, no elbowing. Okay, so what that means is that if, if, if you hear something that I say that you're like a man in your life needs to hear that, please don't go like this. Okay, that, what that does is it makes men defensive. It puts them on the defense, and they're actually less likely to listen. Okay, that also applies to the look, so please don't give the look. Okay, also applies to please don't like go, hey, write that down. Okay, there's a decent chance the men in your life don't like to write or read, okay? Uh, so the men in general are more kinesthetic learners and uh, visual learners, and so I'm actually trying to teach in a way that they'll connect with regardless of whether they write things down or not. So the next thing is that of you men in the room, I don't want to isolate those of you who are husbands, but I am going to say that there's a good chunk of what we're talking about that will be directed at husbands. But if you're here and you're a guy and you're not a husband, this, is stuff, this stuff is going to be totally applying to you as well. Because we're going to be talking about manhood in general, we're going to be talking about husband, what it looks like to be a husband and what it looks like to be a leader, okay? And so don't check out uh, for that. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at some principles of manhood, marriage, and leadership from a guy who wasn't good at any of them, okay? But I, as a guy, I know that we as men can learn not only just when people tell us, here's what you should do, but we can learn what not to do, right, guys? We learn from what not to do. I'll give you an example. If, if, uh, if we do it back to my high school days, Okay, there were some guys that I know. It wasn't me, of course, but some other guys that I know that decided that one night uh, they were going to toilet paper the house of the volleyball coach. Okay, um, she had a daughter on the team that we knew, and back in Monticello, where I grew up, toilet papering. You guys know what toilet papering is, right? Is that is where you throw toilet paper in trees? If, anyway, so young people here, don't do that. Not good. Don't do that. Okay, but anyway. Um, so where I grew up, toilet papering was something that you did to your friends. It's not something that you did it to your enemies. And I think sometimes that's what people would do is they toilet paper their enemies' house. We didn't do that. We toilet papered our friends' houses because it would be funny and then you could laugh and they'd have to clean it up. So anyway, uh, the volleyball coach, we liked her and we liked her daughter. And, and so what we thought we'd do is during the middle of a volleyball game, as I think eight or ten of us slipped out of the game during halftime, we said we're going to go out a few miles out in the country and toilet paper their house. And so we grabbed some toilet paper and went out and started to, to do the thing that we were doing. And so... Um, Brian, one of my buddies, 
this was just on the heels of homecoming, and we had decorated the gym with all these streamers. And that year, we actually used metallic streamers. Are you familiar with metallic streamers? So anyway, Brian said, hey, we got these leftover metallic streamers. Let's bring those things along and spruce it up a little bit. We thought, well, that's a great idea. So Brian is out there, and he takes his metallic streamer, and he chucks it over the power lines. And I just want to tell you something. That's not a good idea. Okay, not a good idea at all. There was just this huge, okay, like the box that was on top of the pole blew up. Okay, all the countryside, like the lights went out. You know, you can hear the, you know, like all the lights are out. And we're like, I think he probably could have died. Like Brian was all, he wasn't that far away from where it came down. I think he would have died. So um, we then saw that happen. We did whatever anybody else would do in that situation is we just ran away. We all, we all got in our cars. We drove back into town like nothing happened. We went back to the volleyball game. And we were sitting down, and some other friends were like, man, it's crazy. Like, just like 10 minutes ago, the whole place was just like, boom. Like, the lights were flickering. Like, oh, that's about, that's crazy. Okay? So I say this to you because, because why? Because we as men can learn. We can learn from what not to do, right, guys? And so from that, like, we learn. What do we learn? What? Don't throw metallic streamers over power lines. Don't get caught. Run away. All kinds of things you can learn. Anyway, uh, I'm just kidding. Don't. Anyway, so um, here's what we're going to do. This morning we're going to learn how not to be a man, how not to be a husband, and how not to be a leader from a guy named Xerxes. And if it helps you guys remember, we're not going to call him Xerxes. We're going to call him Jerxes. Okay, can you guys say that? Jerxes. Okay, so here we go. Uh, 347 in the, the Bibles that you have under your chairs is the book of Esther, and that's where we're going to find Jerxes. Okay, we're going to look at the story of Esther this morning and learn some things about what we are not to do as men, husbands, or leaders. And so as you turn to Esther, I really encourage you to follow along. So grab a, grab a Bible and read with us. We're going to read through almost the full chapter, the first chapter. To give you context, we're about 2,500 years ago from now, about 475 years BC is the context. The people of the Hebrew people had been taken captive by the Babylonians and towards Babylon. The Persians then a few years later came in and took over from the Babylonians and they became the superpower. Now, the, some of the Persian kings had originally let some of the, the, the exiles or the, the, the refugees, if you would, go back to Jerusalem. They started to do that, but not everybody went back right away. And so there was still a community of Hebrew people living in the capital city of Susa. That's the Persian capital, Susa. And so that's kind of the backdrop of what we find. Now, because we're not going to go through a specific text and exegete it like we usually do, uh, we're going to be kind of popping in and out of chapter 1. I want to give you just the overview of the book of Esther so you kind of know the whole story as we zoom in and out. Here's how it goes. There is a king, Persian king, named Jerxes. His real name is Ahasuerus. Okay? Bless you. Anyway, so they call him Xerxes as well. We'll call him Jerxes. He, uh, he wanted to throw a big party like 180 days, to show off his wealth. And not only do he want to show off his wealth, he wanted to show off his trophy wife. So he tra- calls, tells her to come in because she's so pretty. She says, I'm not doing that for you. I'm not your trophy. And so then he gets mad. He fires her as the queen and holds a beauty contest for her replacement. There is a Jewish girl named Hadassah who is, has a Persian name, Esther. She wins. And so she wins becomes queen in Persia. Meanwhile, her uncle, a guy named Mordecai, is kind of working behind the scenes, kind of overseeing her from a distance. He has this thing going on with, so the Persian king, uh, Xerxes, has this kind of right-hand man. His name is Haman. And Haman it wants everyone to bow before him all the time. 
And, and everyone thinks he's a big deal, except Mordecai doesn't do it. He's like, I'm not bowing before you. You're not God. I don't bow before anyone but God. Haman hates that, hates, the, hates Mordecai and says, I have to find a way to get rid of all these Jewish people altogether. And so he basically gets the king to sign an edict where on a certain day down the road, all the Persian people can just take out the Jewish people whenever they want. Mordecai then goes to his niece, Esther, and says, hey, you have to use your influence as the queen with the king to save the people. She eventually does do that. The people are saved, and they celebrate a holiday called Purim. That's where Purim comes from, so this is the story of Esther. That's the whole picture, and now we're going to go chapter 1, okay? I want to give you this context because some of it's going to be relevant. So chapter 1, before we uh, do that, let me pray. Father, thank you for this chance to dive into an ancient narrative that speaks to us today. And, and Lord, if we don't learn uh, from what not to do from Xerxes, maybe we still learn from that, but if we don't, help us to learn what to do from uh, the perfect king, the perfect husband, the one who this story is ultimately about. His name is Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, that's Egypt. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. Then in verses 4 through 8, it just tells you how awesome the party was. Verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when the king was drunk, was high in spirits, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, that's listed there, verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Now, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matter of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to him. And then it lists them. Verse 15. According to the law, the king said, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes. See him referring to himself in third person. He's a big deal. Anyway, that the eunuchs have taken to her. 16. Then Memukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Oh, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, Well, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median Median women of the nobility will have heard about the queen's conduct and will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of the disrespect and discord. (gasps) Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Yes, oh, yes, they will. Oh, yes, they will. Verse 21, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches all throughout in every language proclaiming in people's tongues that every man should be ruler over his household. All right, this is chapter 1. Now, some scholars believe that Esther is to be interpreted as a comedy because of the way that the characters are presented. If you look at the characters, I mean, this matches up with almost today's sitcoms. 
You guys familiar with King of Queens, like Kevin James? You know, the, you got a buffoon husband kind of who's supposed to be kind of leading but isn't. Then you got the strong, beautiful, confident woman who's not taking any of his baloney. And then his buddies, he gets his buddies together and they whine about stuff. I mean, it's all there. Like, this is sort of a comedy. You can kind of see it playing out. Like, it's almost like at times you kind of want to be like, I mean, just you're waiting for a guy to go like, you know, this is almost a comedy. But there are a few things that pop out from this that I think we can learn as men. Now, I want to be careful before I start to draw these things out to just give you one nugget here. There's a difference between what's called a prescriptive text and what's called a descriptive text. In Scripture, there are texts that are descriptive, including this one. And what I mean by that is it's describing what happened. This is not prescribing what should happen. It's describing what did happen. If you went to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, for example, you're going to find a prescriptive text. In that text, he's not saying, hey, here's what happened in Ephesus. He's saying, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's not a a story. That's a command. Over here, we say, we find... And then Jerxes did this and Jerxes did that. That's not saying, guys, this is how we should do it. And so I'm not saying we can take this text over here and just start to prescribe it. But what I am saying is that we can learn from this. We certainly can. And here's the first thing that we can learn. Guys, ready? First thing we can learn from Jerxes is it is hard to make good decisions when we're drunk. Okay? It's hard to make good decisions when we're drunk. Now, I want to be be careful about this. Um, I, when we talk about drinking, we need to make sure that you're clear on some things. Scripture does not prohibit followers of Christ from drinking. Okay? We know that Jesus drank wine. We know that Jesus was called a drunkard, not because he was drunk, but because of the people that he hung out with. Having said that, Scripture has a prescriptive text that says we should not be a stumbling block to a weaker brother. And so sometimes what you might find is you might find people in the Christian church who are completely uh, against drinking altogether, and it may seem legalistic to you, but I want to defend it for a little bit. I want to defend it just because what they're probably trying to do is toe the line to say, I don't want to be a stumbling block, which means that because I have freedom and I can drink, just because I have that freedom doesn't mean that I should drink in front of someone who is perhaps uh, has an alcoholic tendency. And I want to be very careful about that, and so I just am going to stay away from it altogether. But we, just, but we still have to go back to the fact that Scripture doesn't prohibit us from doing this. But what Scripture does say, it does prohibit, it says, Paul says right before Ephesians 5 where he says, Husbands, love your wives. Right before it, he says, do not, this is a command, do not be drunk on wine. Which leads to all sorts of debauchery and all kinds of bad news. You'll end up throwing metallic streamers over stuff. I mean, I don't know, we weren't even drunk. I'm just saying. So you do bad decisions. He says, but instead, so do not be drunk, be filled with the Holy Spirit, in which will lead to the fruit of the Spirit. Guys, we know we don't make good decisions when people, guys are drunk. Okay? We don't make good decisions. And and, and so I I, I was wrestling through this as I was writing this this week, and I was thinking, I'm like, I think in 10 years I've never really said that out loud in front of the, the family. Like, guys, we can't be drunk. And I think there's probably guys in the room here and I'm, that probably are still getting drunk. And I don't say that to you to go, shame on you. Here's what I say this for. I say it because Jesus says, look, um, I don't prohibit you from drinking, but I don't want you to be drunk because I offer you a better wine. I have something better for you. I don't want, you to, I don't want to mess with that mind of yours. I want wine to mess with your mind because I've given you that mind to be used for my kingdom. Okay, so don't be drunk 
unwind. So be filled with my Holy Spirit because it's better than anything Miller Lite could ever offer you, huh? Maybe that's a horrible example. But I mean, other high-end beverages, I don't care what your best Jack and Coke is, whatever. He's like, this is a buzz that you can't get from that. It's the Holy Spirit. Be filled and said with the Holy Spirit. And so, guys, if we're going to be the men and husband leaders that God wants for us, we, we, we can't be drunk, okay? We have to be wise. So Xerxes is drunk, and this causes him to do all kinds of dumb things. The first thing of which he does is he objectifies his wife, which is our second, second point. So I kind of want you to, to, to just envision him sitting on his throne. You guys know that I'm loaded, right? I've, I'm pretty sure I'm the richest guy in the world. But did you know that I also have a, an amazing wife? Have you seen her? Queen Vashti is her name. Do you guys know who I'm talking about? You know what? Why don't we do this? Why don't we bring her in here? You guys go. Go get her and tell her to come in here. I just wanted to show herself off in front of my buddies. And I'm sure that Queen Vashti was just like, ooh, I'm so excited to go. My drunken husband wants me to come and parade myself in front of his drunken friends. So honoring. Thank you, Jerxies. So, no. Second thing, guys, we can't, we can't make a decision when we're drunk. Second thing is this, we can't, we, we can't objectify the women in our lives. We can't objectify our wives, okay? We can't objectify women, guys, including our wives. And I know that this is increasingly difficult. And it's increasingly difficult in our culture because if you took, you guys know this, right, the stat that if you took all the revenues of professional football, baseball, basketball, and hockey, and you took all the revenues, they would still not add up to the amount that we spend on pornography in this country. Yeah. We objectify. And what happens when we objectify women? We take the creation, we, we take created ones of God and we turn them into an object used for our own intake, if you would. We reduce them to something less than human. And we can't do that. And I, guys, I get it. It's difficult. I, I think my wife, Stephanie, um, you'll see her here next week. She is absolutely stunningly beautiful. And I know inside, like I know her heart too. And so like that makes her even more attractive, like off the charts. And, and, and so, and yet I still at times find knowing all this beauty that sometimes I will objectify her. Just this past week in my missional community, I, we were talking about some things. I made kind of an offhanded joke about some things and, it, and Steph was there and it was kind of me trying to be like, oh, she's beautiful, but it wasn't. And so I had to kind of repent and apologize to the guys and my wife. I know it's difficult, okay? Now, by all means, men, we need to be telling the women in our lives they're beautiful. What was the last time, guys, that you told the women in your life that women in your life she's beautiful, or your daughters that they're beautiful? Now, part of the reason that, that we we don't do this very well is because we're like, "Oh, you're so sexy," okay? And they're just like, "You're objectifying me." That's not good terms. Don't use that, guys. Don't say that. Even that's what you're thinking. Use different words and say you are stunning. You're 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 just beautiful. You're graceful. These kinds of words build her up. And, and you'll, I know what you'll say to me. You'll say, Troy, I'll tell her and she won't believe me. I tell her and she's like, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. You don't mean that. Guys, I know what you're talking about, okay? And I, I know what they're going to say. That's Satan trying to use beauty against them. It's one of his key weapons against the women in our lives, okay? But I'm telling you, I don't care if she believes you or not. You've got to say it and you've got to say it regularly and you've got to mean it. And then the other thing is you've got to be careful. If you're objectifying her, she's going to know, and that's going to undermine the whole thing. So we've got to remove the objectification. 
You've got to tell them they're beautiful. Okay, what else can we learn? So don't be drunk. That doesn't help us make good decisions. Don't objectify women. Number three, guys, don't surround yourselves with other men who don't honor your wife or your marriage. Don't surround yourself, guys, with other men who do not honor your wife and who do not honor your marriage. Okay? In verse 13, Vashti refuses to be the trophy wife. Uh, Jerxes gets his cronies together to figure out what to do with a rebellious wife that he's got. And you know what a real man would have said? A real man would have went up to the king and said, Your Highness, with all due respect, might I please speak? Um, this seems to be a domestic dispute between you and, the, and your queen. Perhaps you could speak with her, and perhaps you may want to adjust your approach in a way that would actually honor her instead of being a, a drunken idiot. Now, in their defense, Persian king might have cut his head off if they would have said that. Okay, so, but, but the idea is... This is what a guy would say, that he really cares. But here's, here's what I want to do. I, I want to show you what these guys do here. He goes to them, his cronies, and they take an issue between Xerxes and Vashti. And who do they make it about? They make it about themselves. They say, oh, oh, your queen, she has just jacked it all up for all of us. Like as soon as my wife hears what she just did, oh, I'm in for it because I treat her like baloney too. And we can't have any of that. So he does, he asks his buddies, and all they care about is how it impacts them. Guys, if, you're, if you've got an issue with the women in your life, and you go to a buddy, you need to listen real carefully to how he's responding to you. Because if he starts to join in, and he starts to rip his own wife, or rips yours, not your guy. Not your guy. Now, you may need to be salt light to that guy, but not the guy that you go to to say, hey, here's a th- something I'm working through. Because he's going to just start to think about himself. He's, going to, he's not going to think about the us of your relationship. He's going to be maybe thinking about maybe your best interest. And what he needs to be doing instead of saying, let me, let me love you and call you up into servant leadership better. Let me love you and call you into humility, into a greater level of humility instead of trying to divide you and your bride. Okay? And guys, if other guys come to you and they're complaining, I want you to be thinking about how you're responding. Because I don't want you to respond like these cronies do here, thinking about themselves. Think about the us of the relationship with the guy who's coming to you. We have to surround ourselves with men who honor our wives and our marriages and our daughters and our sisters and our mothers. There's an us in here. A couple of months ago, I was spending some time with a friend of mine, and uh, he was uh, struggling a little bit with uh, his marriage. He doesn't, he's not part of Kettlebrook. And so he was sharing some of these things, not huge problems, but some problems a little bit he wanted to work through. And so I listened, I asked him some questions. And uh, at the end I said, hey, 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 brother, can I, do I have your permission to give you some thoughts on that? He says, absolutely. And I said, when, I said, what would you think if you went to your wife and you asked her the question, honey, how can I serve you better? How can I serve you better? I said, have you asked that question? He said, no, I haven't. I said, because what I see you doing is I actually see you trying to serve your wife, but I think what you're doing is I think you're serving her in ways that are kind of easiest for you, ways that work really well for you. He's like, you're right. I am. I said, what would it look like if you just asked her, honey, how can I better serve you? And so he did. And then two weeks after that, he called me and left a voicemail. I missed his call. He left a voicemail, and I asked him if I could read it. He said, yes, he's not part of Kettlebrook. <clears throat> he said, Troy, I want you to know, Excuse me. I want you to know how much your encouragement to ask the question, how can I serve you to my wife, and then actually listening and responding and doing the things she asked, 
how much it's completely changing our relationship. I can't even describe how much more passion, love, and just an amazing feeling of intimacy and connectedness we feel and gratitude and appreciation we feel for each other that we haven't felt for a while. This last week has been amazing, and I think I have greatly underestimated and greatly underserved my wife and her love language of acts of service. And so changing that has literally changed her and me. So anyway, very cool stuff. Thanks again. Love you, brother. Isn't that cool? It's a simple question. And so here's an application for you guys. It says next slide. There are three questions on this slide that you don't have to write down because I put them in your bulletin. Okay? How can I love Jesus better? How can I love and serve you better? How can I lead and serve our family better? If you, your mission, should you, should you choose to accept it, is to find some time to ask your bride these questions or ask your daughter these questions or ask your mother these questions. Okay? Now, <clears throat> Um, this is just chapter one, guys. These are just three things we drew from chapter one. I want to give you two more things that are more of like from the whole book of Esther that will help us as men. And the first one is this. We need to create proximity and we need to be present for the women in our lives. We need to create proximity and we need to be present for the women in our lives. Okay? I put this chair up here uh, for a reason. I put this love seat up here for a reason. I had Ryan do it for me. Thank you, Ryan, for whoever put this up here. Because this is... Xerxes, sitting on his throne with his scepter. Okay? And so if you look in the first chapter of Esther, you're going to find uh, the idea of being in his presence a couple times. The next slide, Gary, has got uh, four different examples of this. Just chapter 1. It says, The nobles and the princes of his provinces were being in his presence, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king, seven princes of Persia and Medea who had access to the king's presence, and then at the end, oh, Vashti may no longer come into the presence of the king. This is just chapter 1. There's more of it throughout Esther. You'll find it about being in the presence of the king. And the king, obviously, he's the king of Persia, so he may need to have some boundaries around who can just come running up to his throne. But he's got this golden scepter that he, when he wants, he decides he can just, yeah, now you can be in my presence. Now, you guys probably have lounge chairs at home, don't you? Don't you? You do. And you like your lounge chair. It's got a lever here. Might even have a button. You can automatically bring it out here. And it is your throne. And sometimes you sit on it just like Xerxes. And you put the game on. And your kingdom is running right now. And should anyone dare to enter, you better, they better make sure you extend the scepter before they interrupt you while you are on your throne. Okay? Now, guys, I like lounge chairs. I actually do. I think they're comfy. But I did this for a visual to say, is your relationship a lounge chair or a love seat? Is your relationship a lounge chair or a love seat? Because this is the throne that we sit on. But what we need to be doing is we need to be thinking about a relationship in terms of a love seat. There's a reason they call it a love seat, folks. Because there's love up in here. Okay? Like inherently in the name of the furniture. It's right here. Because this, this piece of furniture implies what? That you're not sitting on a throne by yourself. There's actually someone else in the relationship. There is a love that needs to happen between the two of you. Okay? And so we have to create proximity. It means we need to allow... Hey, guys, and when I say proximity, I know what you're thinking. That's not what I'm talking about right now. Okay? Although there, I would say, in my experience, there's a direct correlation between the amount of proximity that you give your wife and the proximity she'll give you. Okay? We have to create proximity. 
We need to be able to sit down and, and listen and truly listen to her and be present. Because, guys, you know as well as I do that it's, even if you were to say, I'm going to leave the lounge chair, I'm going to go to the love seat, that you can actually be present. You can be present physically and be totally not present, right? You can just be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. Uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago. We were in our coaching court with Jeff uh, Vanderstelt. And so he opened us up with prayer. And, and after he got done with the prayer, he says, guys, why do we pray before we like start this meeting? It's like a 90-minute session that uh, Ryan and Dave and I, a couple other guys, have a chance to spend with Jeff. And, and so we were answering the question a little bit. He goes, one of the reasons why we, we pray, it's not, a, it's not a religious Christian thing. He goes, one of the reasons we pray is this. Because I just got out of a meeting with a bunch of pastors from the Northwest, and we're trying to figure out how to saturate this whole region with the gospel. He's like, I'm sure all you guys had some heavy stuff that you were dealing with in the meetings that you came from all day. We're at 3 o'clock. It's late. There's a lot going on. You might have stuff going on tonight. And so what we need to do is we need to be present right here, right now. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pray so that we can say, God, would you take care of the meeting that's behind me until I got out of this one? And would you take care of what's in front of me so I can be focused and present here and now? And for me, that was super relevant. That hit me like a ton of bricks. Because, I mean, not just with my kids and my wife, but just like in every meeting, am I present? I can be have close proximity and not be present. Uh, a month and a half ago, I was in the office and I was doing some logistical work with Bridget File. Bridget's on our uh, administrative staff team. And so we were talking and then um, she was talking and I started to walk back towards my office. And she said, hey, Troy, could you please not walk away from me when I'm talking to you? Yeah, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, what just happened was my body physically did what my mind had already done, which was left that conversation, was on to the next thing. And thank God that Bridget called me on that. She called me on it. And I said, Bridget, I am so sorry. You want to talk about being disrespectful and dishonoring of you, me walking away and turning my back to you like I'm totally on to the next thing. I'm not being present. And so guys, we have to be present. And so what this might mean for you, I know for me, is that when I'm on my way home, sometimes I deal with some heavy stuff, and on my way home, I like go into our neighborhood, but I don't go all the way home. I just pull over for a few minutes because I'm like, okay, I'm going to walk into four kids, a wife, and then potentially seven neighbor kids. Who knows what? And I'm not ready to go there yet. I'm not hiding or running away. I just need, God, would you help me to be present when my kids say, Dad, look at me. I can really look at them and not be thinking about what just happened or thinking about what's coming up at 8 tonight. Can you, can you help me do that? Guys, you may have to do that so you can be present. Guys, you may have to come into the house. Sometimes I do, and my wife just comes. Everyone's like, yeah, da, 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 da. And then Stephanie will start talking to me. I'm like, honey, I can't do it right now. I just can't. I want to listen to you, and I'm not listening to you right now. So can you give me a second so I can make sure I can hear what you said? Because I'm not listening right now. Or even better, guys, you can say, can you, if it's possible, create some space. Some of you maybe don't have children or empty nests or whatever. Then you create the couch space on the love seat right away and say, honey, here's some things I need to debrief from the day so I can be fully present with you. I'm going to share my heart with you. You guys want to kill seven birds with one stone, do that. I mean, that's a win, 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 win. Okay? But this is what we need to do. We need to be present. And taking it a step further, Jeff, he, he went back and he says, guys, what do we do when we're present? What are we doing when we're able to be present with the people that we're with? And we're like, oh, I don't know. He goes, we're demonstrating the gospel. When we're fully present with the people we're with, we're demonstrating the gospel. How so, Jeff? Because we believe in a God who is fully present. 
a God who sent His Son as Emmanuel, God with us, a God who sent His Spirit to be in us, fully present. And so every time that we're in a meeting or any time that we're with somebody else and we're fully present, we're actually demonstrating a glimpse of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's amazing because we're just present. Okay, so guys, we need to be present. We have to create proximity. Now, one more thing that's worthy of mention in the book of Esther for us men. Here we go, last thing. There's no mention of God in the whole book of Esther. Not one time is God mentioned. This is scripture, and there's no mention of God one time. Why is that? I have a hypothesis. Perhaps it's because Jerxes thinks he's God. Perhaps it's because Jerxes thinks he's God. I mean, he does, after all, sit in his throne. The whole world revolves around him as golden scepter. Okay? The women have to take a year worth of beauty treatments just to be in his presence because it all revolves around him. What a jerk. And yet, do we not as men do the same thing sometimes? I mean, sure, we don't have the kind of money he had. We don't have a harem, but would we if we could? You know, if, if there's no mention of God in your story of your house, in the story of your house, could it be because perhaps that you think you're God? That the house revolves around you? Could it be? And so I think we have to be very careful. Because you know what? Anyone looking at this story from the outside in thinking that, that Xerxes thinks he's God is laughing because it's a joke. And anyone looking on the outside in of your home and you think you're God, it's a, it's a comedy, folks. That's a comedy. And a tragedy, quite frankly. That's why we get drunk, because we want to please ourselves. That's why we objectify, because it's all about us. That's why we have people tell us what we want to hear, because it's about us. And with this posture, guys, if we take that posture, we will never be real men. We'll never be real husbands or leaders until we bow before and submit before the true king. We'll never be a real man. Until we take off our own crowns and get out of our own thrones and, and turn those over to the one who is only one worthy of wearing it or sitting in it, we're not going to be the leaders we're made to be. There's no mention of God in the book of Esther, and yet every single page shouts his name because every page says we yearn for and long for a better king. We yearn for and long for a a true good husband and a good leader. And Jesus told his disciples, he said, hey, guys, all scripture is about me. All of it is about me, including Esther. Of course it is. Because Jesus is the perfect king that Xerxes could never be. Jesus is the true husband for his bride, the church. Jesus is the perfect leader who is perfectly sovereign, the one who is never drunk but completely filled with the Holy Spirit, the one who doesn't objectify but because he created us, the one, though, he was surrounded by people who didn't honor each other. He doesn't make selfish decisions, but he made selfless decisions, the one who is not just the king but who is the servant king, the one who made proximity with God the Father possible through his own sacrifice, the one who, though being in very nature God, took on the form and nature of a servant or a slave so that he could be fully present with us through his obedience, even death on the cross, so we might have the Holy Spirit with us. The perfect man, the perfect king, the perfect leader, and his name is Jesus. Amen, guys? Men, until we see Jesus for who he is, 
we will not be the men that we're supposed to be. But once we see Jesus for who he is, then we can be the men that we were made to be. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for not only giving us this horrible example of a man and a king in Xerxes, but for giving us the the perfect king, for sending us the perfect husband for his bride, the perfect leader, the servant leader, and the servant king. Father, I pray for the men in this room that we would submit ourselves to him. He's the only one worthy of submitting to. And we pray, Father, you'd help us as men to, to get up off of the thrones that we have in our own lives. The fact that we keep you out of our story because we think that we are king and we are God and we are not and we repent. Help us to be men who submit to the true king. And in so doing, you can then work in and through us to be the men you made us to be. We pray this for your glory and for the honoring and cherishing of the women in this world as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.